You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, 
avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Recently, I put a question to my friends on Facebook and Instagram. I thought I'd get a few responses, maybe half a dozen, but to my surprise, almost 300 comments came flooding in. The question, what is the worst piece of relationship advice you have ever received? Natalie recalls a pastor trying to persuade her to marry a guy that was as old as her dad. His advice to her, just marry him. Love will come afterwards. Keaton was told, you shouldn't be friends with girls. You can date them, just don't be friends with them. Stella says, so I'm a non-Christian and struggling with insecurities. And my friend said to see a psychiatrist. He suggested I sleep with as many guys as I can to boost my confidence. Brett says he was once advised that his wife, Linda, would appreciate a new vacuum cleaner for her 30th birthday. Turns out the salesman was wrong. Kane was told, it's fine to start a romantic relationship with someone who isn't a Christian because you can evangelize them and bring them to Christianity. Alicia was advised, you shouldn't marry someone you haven't had sex with because you might not be sexually compatible. When it comes to dating, Joshua was told, treat her mean, keep her keen. Candy was told, guys don't like independent women. Dumb it down. Otherwise, you won't be able to find true love. Dylan was told, date Jesus instead. And how about Jody? She says, as someone married to a former widower, I was advised to find out what perfume the late wife wore so that the children would be more subconsciously attracted to me. Last and maybe least, uh, my good mate Jono, who's actually a pastor out in the West. Hi, Jono. Uh, someone once pulled him aside and said, this thing with you and Beyonce is going nowhere. Jono, if you liked it, you should have put a ring on it. A big thanks to everybody who responded. And it's not too late to join in the fun. So if you'd like to share your worst piece of a relationship advice, chuck that uh, on the comments below or whatever platform you're joining us with. Today, we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. And as we dive into chapter 7, we see that the Apostle Paul is now dealing with a series of really, really, really bad advice when it comes to sex, singleness, and marriage. Here's the top three. You ready for this? Bad advice number one. Sex is dirty and gross, so save it for the one you love. Uh, this was pretty much the kind of advice I would hear as a teenager when I went to a church youth group and they had a special night on sex. Turns out it was not too dissimilar to the kinds of advice that the people in Corinth were giving. Look with me to verse 1. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
Now, you want to know the inverted commas here because it signals to us that this advice is not coming from Paul, but the men and women in Corinth. They were saying it's not good for a man to sleep with a woman. And that's super interesting, right? For those of you who tuned in last weekend, you'll recall that Paul was uh, addressing Christians in the church who were sleeping around with whoever they wanted, whenever they liked. For them, sex was akin to food. Uh, when you're hungry, you're, you eat. When you're, when you're feeling sexy, you sex. But in chapter 7, Paul turns his attention to a very different group. In contrast to those who are sleeping around, now he's addressing those in the church who are turning up their noses and, and looking at sex with a bit of disgust and disdain. These Christians were telling single people and married couples that sex was dirty, it was gross, and that if you really want to please the Lord, you should abstain and avoid any and all forms of sex. Now, where do you suppose an idea like this comes from? I can tell you it doesn't come from the Bible. Uh, in fact, if you kind of dig deep into ancient Greek philosophy, you'll see that there was teaching uh, around the duality of humanity, that, that there's a separation between the body and, and the soul. We, we, we explored this, didn't we, last week, where they elevated the soul as being the true you, the real you, and had a very low and negative view of, of the flesh, of the body. The body was considered a prison, and the goal of life was to escape the body and get out. And this low view of the body led to some very harsh and negative views concerning sex. And you can actually, you can actually follow this thread all the way through church history. Uh, early church fathers like Gregory of Nicaea, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr taught that Adam and Eve were virgins all the way up until they ate the forbidden fruit, at which point they then descended into the debauchery of the flesh. Throughout the Middle Ages, Roman Catholics made celibacy mandatory for all priests. And to this day, the official teaching of the Catholic Church is that if you decide to marry, you cannot have sex unless for procreation. What does Paul say about such things? Open your Bible, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. What does it mean that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband? It means exactly what you're hoping it means. <laughs> Sex is not a demon to be feared nor a God to be worshipped. It is a gift to be enjoyed. The husband gives himself to his wife and the wife gives herself to the husband. And the word give is worth underlining in your Bible because it highlights to us what is so beautiful and what is countercultural when it comes to the biblical vision of sex, right? You, you, in the world, sex so often is reduced to that which is transactional, right? It doesn't really matter who the person is lying next to you or the person on the other side of the screen, their personhood is almost irrelevant, 
right? They're an object of my desire that exists solely to serve my needs and my wants. But in the gospel, sex is radically different. Sex is not about what you get. Sex is about what you give. I am wanting to serve my bride emotionally. I am wanting to serve my bride spiritually. I'm wanting to serve my bride physically. And with God's help, I am wanting to serve her sexually. And as I am giving myself to her, she is likewise giving herself to me. And so instead of asking, what can I get out of my next sexual experience? As a Christian, you go to the bedroom asking, how can I best serve you? How can I help you feel desirable? How can I feel, help you feel uh, alive? How can I help serve and bless you? Uh, one of the couples, I, uh, couples, one of the books I highly recommend to couples, married couples who are stuck in isolation, is the Song of Songs. Right, the Song of Songs is an explicit, free, and unblushing celebration of sex. Not a few lines. Not a few cheeky words hidden in the bottom of the paragraph. Eight delicious chapters that are dripping, dripping with sexual intimacy, erotic love, tantalizing imagery, joyful arousal, and climactic exhilaration. Of course, one of the ways that religious folks have tried to hose down our enthusiasm is by explaining that the eight chapters of erotic foreplay are nothing more than spiritual symbolism. For example, chapter one, the woman says, my lover, lover is a um, sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Some scholars will say, the left breast is a reference to the Old Testament, the right breast, the New Testament, and the sachet of myrrh is Jesus who lies in between. Right? Or, or chapter 7, the lover says, Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. Some will tell you, this is a reference to the nurturing doctrine of the church. Look, I'm no scholar, uh, but when I read, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like clusters, I don't think nurturing doctrine of the church, I think breasts. Now, clearly... Clearly, marriage is a wonderful and beautiful and sacred mystery that points us to Christ. But I do believe that you can hold that truth while recognizing the wonder and glory of sex. Look with me to verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is interesting. Interesting because Paul not only underscores this unique and mutual bond that a husband and wife share together, but he also warns that if we deprive one another physically and sexually, we open ourselves up to temptation and sin. Now, perhaps this is the temptation to, to doubt our value or, or question our love. 
perhaps this is the temptation to draw apart and direct our affection and find our affection from someone else, right? Remember that sex at its heart is about oneness. In the same way that Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember the union that they have with Christ, so sex is a means of grace to remind a husband and a wife that they are one. So what does Paul mean when he says a husband and wife shouldn't deprive one another? Well, Paul isn't denying, what Paul isn't denying is that there are seasons of your life, whether because of illness or injury, that a husband and wife can't have sex or choose not to. But the point Paul seems to be making is that if you can give yourself to one another sexually, then in love, work out how and when you can to serve one another and go for it, right? It it doesn't matter whether this is once a day, once a week, once a month. What's important is that you are moving toward one another. And in that, remember that great sexual intercourse is always the fruit of great sexual chemistry, right? Sexual intimacy is is the unique art of creating a close uh, emotional bond. It's, It's that affection. It's that drawing together. And this is where understanding a distinction between men and and women is actually really, really helpful in understanding this. Um, Pastor uh, Jerry Seinfeld explains this explains this well. He says this, seems to me the basic conflict between men and women sexually is that men are like firemen. To men, sex is an emergency. And no matter what we're doing, we can be ready in two minutes. Women, on the other hand, are like fire. They're very exciting, but the conditions have to be exactly right for it to occur. Is there anything wrong with quick and spontaneous sex? No, but to celebrate sex, we need to take time to lovingly and thoughtfully and creatively light the flame. Now, how might we do that? Well, one way is through the use of careful and creative words. Uh, In the Song of Songs, the man says to his lover, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, I tried this with my wife, Vanessa. I said, Vanessa, when I look at you, you remind me of a horse. It it didn't work. Don't know why it didn't work. Funnily, one writer believes by likening the bride to a mare, he's suggesting that the woman must have had very, very large hips suitable for childbearing. Another indicates that she must have been a very fast runner. Uh, I think this commentator gets it right. He says, in Solomon's day, mares were never used to pull the king's chariot, but only stallions were so used and always hitched in pairs. Yet in this picture, a mare has been harnessed to the chariot alongside the stallion. This puts the stallion into a frenzy of galloping desire. So this analogy has nothing to do with comparing her to a horse. Instead, it declares the overwhelming sensual impact she makes upon him, her very presence drives him wild. And in case you think it's only the man who does the talking, in the Song of Songs, it's the woman who speaks first and most often. She says, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. Women, 
men are simple creatures. Uh, they live off food, water, and compliments. So be encouraged. Use your words to build him up. Think of creative ways to be adventurous, to explore all of the, the senses that God has given you to come together and enjoy one another. Right? Be creative. Some like sex in a fancy hotel. Others like sex under the stars. Some like scheduled sex. Some like spontaneous sex. Some like sex with a bit of cream on top. Others are vegan. Right? Now, listen, is great sex everything in a marriage? No, but it is a good gift that God has given for us to enjoy. That leads to the second piece of bad advice. You ready for it? Bad advice number two, life's short, have an affair, right? Bad advice number two, life's short, have an affair. Now, some of you will note that this advice was the marketing slogan for the global brand Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison positioned themselves as the most open-minded dating community in the world. Uh, with a membership that they boast now is over 60 million people. And, and clear, I mean, I just find it appalling that there's some swanky businessman out there uh, making millions on other people's uh, pain. But, but I do find the marketing in this to be very uh, crafty, right? Take another look at it. In just a few words, they have tapped into and exploited the dominant worldview of our day. Right? What is most staggering here is not the statement, have an affair, but the assumption that life is short and ultimately about me. Right? Think about it. If you can rally people around that promise, if you can get people to agree that life is just a few short decades and that the moment you die, the show is over and there's nothing on the other side, no accountability, no, no judgment, no God to face. If, if you can get them to believe that life is truly short, then you can just about justify anything, right? If life is short, then why bother sticking around with a boring or difficult relationship? If life is short, why... Put the needs of others ahead of your needs. If life is short, why not just follow your heart and do whatever makes you happy? Well, this is where the Bible, this is where the Bible presents a radically different and far more compelling worldview. Right? So, so look with me to verse 10. Now, here, Paul kind of zeroes in to speak to those within the church who are cheapening the covenant of marriage and trying to look over the shoulder to the next fling or the next flame. They were looking to move on. And, and what does he say to this person? Verse 10, check it out. To the married, I give this charge. And not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, I appreciate that the topic of divorce is, is, is almost taboo, particularly in the church, and that's because it's complex, it's difficult, but I think also, if we can be honest here, it's, it's deeply personal. Uh, I, I remember, like yesterday, uh, when I was nine years of age, sitting on the um, kitchen table, as my mum uh, was on a phone call with my dad and, and she was, uh, you know, tears coming out of her eyes and she was in yet another domestic. I mean, it seemed that, you know, for those early years, my parents were just from one fight 
to the next. And here she was on this call and when she's kind of slammed down the phone, uh, she looks at me and these tears in her eyes and this anger in her face and this frustration and this disappointment. And she says, it's over. It's done. I can't go on with this anymore. I want out of this. I want out of this relationship. I want out of this marriage. And, and the moment she said that to me, I, I, I'll be honest, I knew it was difficult. I knew it was painful, but deep within, I was relieved, right? Because I hated these guys fighting all the time. I hated what it did to my dad, what it did to my mom. I hated what it did to us. You know, after my parents divorced, uh, you know, I saw my mom have to work two, sometimes three jobs. My brother just kind of got into the, the, the whole gang scene and lived on the streets for a bit, basically just giving the middle finger to the world. And I would just go from one house to the next, right? And, and, and look, so many of us know, you know this, so many of you know this because you've experienced this. You know the pain of the brokenness, you know the pain of separation and divorce, and you know that that pain lives on and is passed down through those generations. It, it's brutal. And I've got to confess with you, when it came to the Bible's teaching on divorce, and particularly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for a long while, I, I was unsure about it and actually uncomfortable by it because it just sounded cruel and, and harsh and insensitive, right? But then I did a bit more research and, and a bit more exploring, and, and I discovered uh, that the original laws about divorce that appeared actually in the Old Testament were actually introduced, did you know this, as a means of grace to restrain and rebuke men who were misusing and abusing their brides. Right, so Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, If a man, for any reason whatsoever, was anxious to get rid of his wife, he did so. He brought forward some trumpery excuse, and on the basis of that, he divorced her. Of course, the ultimate cause of it all was nothing but lust and passion. Right? He adds, the Mosaic legislation, therefore, was introduced in order to regularize and control a situation that had not only become chaotic, but was grossly unfair to the women, and in which, in addition, led to untold and endless suffering on the part of both the women and children. And we see this, don't we, in, in, in the heart of Jesus. So in, uh, I think it's Mark 10. The Pharisee says to Jesus, always trying to test Jesus, he says to Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, at the time, some rabbinic schools actually gave license for a man to, to kind of divorce his wife for whatever reason. And Jesus rejected that view. He viewed marriage as a sacred covenant between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman that mirrored the relationship, the covenant that God's people has with, uh, with God, right? Why then? Did Moses permit a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce? Jesus replies, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Right, but from the beginning, the creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore? God has joined together, let no man separate. Do you see the, the heart of Jesus' teaching? Divorce never was God's intention. Never was, never is. And it's worth saying, you know, that couples, 
should recognize that the difficulties that come into your life are always opportunities to, to seek help, to go to God, and to grow together. You know, when I'm talking with a young couple as they enter into marriage, the question is never, will you face difficulty, but what will you do when the difficulty comes? These are opportunities to work together, to depend on God, to grow in the image and likeness of Christ. And so by quoting Genesis, Jesus confirms that marriage, listen, marriage is not a casual relationship that can be tossed away for any and every reason. Divorce should only be explored under very serious conditions. But of course, Jesus knows that those serious conditions exist. And he says, sometimes, Human hearts become so hard that it leads a spouse into a severe violation of the covenant. Now, when we're reading 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, as a pastor, is seeking to address all of these different situations. One of them in 1 Corinthians 7 is where the wife becomes a Christian and the husband, who is not a Christian, decides he wants out of the relationship. In that circumstance, Paul says that, Uh, She's no longer bound to her man and is now free to move on. But that is not the case if the husband wants to stay, right? So in verse 13, in verse 13, he says this, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made what? holy because of her husband. Now, I love Paul's faith and optimism here, right? He's saying that a Christian wife shouldn't divorce her non-Christian husband because it's possible that through her witness, he will be made holy. That is to say that by being to a being married to a Christian, he'll get a front row seat to the gospel and might just, Lord willing, give his life to Jesus. Now, does that mean that it's okay to enter into a romantic relationship with someone who doesn't share your faith? No, that would be a really bad idea. But in the case you got married before you became a Christian, then there's a possibility that through your life and witness, they too may come to faith in Christ, right? For me, it brings to mind the testimony of Lee Strobel, Uh, He he wrote an article once, How Easter Killed My Faith in Atheism. He says this, listen in. It was the worst news I could get as an atheist. My agnostic wife had decided to become a Christian. Two words shot through my uh, mind. The first was an expletive. The second was divorce. I thought she was going to turn into some self-righteous, holy roller. But over the following months, I was intrigued by the positive changes in her character and values. Finally, I decided to take my own journalism and legal training and systematically investigate whether there was any credibility to Christianity. What followed was a two-year exploration into the claim of Jesus and his resurrection. He says, in the end, after I'd thoroughly investigated the matter, I reached an unexpected conclusion. It would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. Bad advice, number one, sex is dirty and gross. Save it for the one you love. Bad advice, number two, life is short. Have an affair. Bad advice, three. Here, Paul shifts his focus 
from those who are married to those who are single. What is the bad advice for singles today? Ready? Bad advice three, hang in there. You won't be on the shelf for long. Now, I think it's fair to say uh, that there has been something of a cultural shift when it comes to our view of singleness. Uh, there was a time when marriage and family was certainly like the hallmark of society, but on the back end of the sexual and digital revolution, culture has pivoted away from that and now covets its own independence and personal freedom. Uh, I actually remember the day I walked into a pub uh, with a good mate of mine uh, who had just proposed to his girlfriend. And he said to the, the barman with a leap in his step, he said, guess what? My girlfriend said yes, and we're getting married. To which the barman says, why on earth would you go and do something as stupid as that? And we laughed at the time, but actually that barman is just expressing what is a cultural response to marriage in our world today, particularly for men, right? Men are told in a million and one ways to avoid commitment as long as you can. But interestingly, the swing away from marriage in culture is almost the exact opposite of what is happening in the church, all right? Insight Magazine said this, in contrast to the mainstream media, which promotes single people as carefree, independent, career-minded, and happy to be flying solo, the reality is very different for those in Christian circles. The message of the church has been one of silence, or at best, a whisper, forcing single people to wonder at their place and purpose within the body of Christ. So this is where the Bible is so relevant, so significant, so important for you. Because in the midst of the bad advice, in the midst of all of the pressure, the cultural pressure to define your identity based on your relational status, Paul, an unmarried man, says this. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't hide in any way his personal preference for singleness. Right? If this was a webinar on sex, marriage, and singleness, and the Apostle Paul was hosting the Zoom meeting, he would say, look, guys, personally, I prefer that you remain single. Now, are there occasions where it's better to marry? Indeed. In fact, in verse 8, Paul explains that if sexual desire is a constant distraction for you, that it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But for Paul, he commends singleness. In fact, for Paul, it's a gift, right? It's a divine gift. Now, you need to appreciate that as a first century Jew, this is an extremely countercultural thing to say. Paul grew up in a culture that prized the family with such intensity and vigor that if you were unmarried and childless, you were almost deemed to be cursed. And in our culture... In our day, we see something similar, but actually for very different reasons. In our culture, sexual fulfillment is, is more, than a, uh, more than an experience, but the ultimate definer of who you are, 
right? Whether you uh, identify as heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual, our world tells us that unless you're having sex with someone, then uh, then you don't really matter, right? We we view uh, look if you were if you were a virgin who was uh, choosing a path of celibacy for religious reasons, you in our day would be considered a social leper. But according to the Bible. Listen, according to the Bible, a life without sex is not a curse. It is a great blessing and gift. Why gift? Well, I believe that part of the answer lies in Paul's ability to devote himself solely to the Lord. Right? In contrast to those who are married, he, a single man, is free to serve God with an undivided heart. Right, a point we'll explore more next week. But I also sense that part of the answer lies in the way that the gospel reimagines our vision of family. The gospel reimagines our vision of family. Uh, this is a great moment in the life of Jesus where you know Peter's tapping Jesus on his shoulder and saying, Jesus, you know, we, we've left everything for you. We've left our jobs, uh, we've left our homes, we've left our, our, our relationships, our, our family, we've laid down everything to follow you, Jesus. And, and you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Isn't this stunning? You see what's happening here? On the one hand, Jesus is fixing our gaze on the eternal kingdom. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter what you lay down in this life because a day is coming on the other side into eternity where you'll, look, you'll enter into the kingdom of God and you'll know joy and fulfillment and, and love and, and happiness unlike anything else before. That's what's ahead of you if you lay down your life and choose to follow Jesus. But interestingly, if you look closely at this text, it shows that Jesus cares not only for your eternal destiny, He also cares about your present needs, right? He cares for your life now. He cares for your relationships now, which is why He says, if you lay down your life for for Jesus, if you give up wife or parents or children, you will receive many times more in this age. So what's He talking about? Is He saying that we're going to get a... Cadillac and a suitcase full of cash? No. Jesus is talking about family. Jesus is talking about relationships. He's saying that when you follow Jesus, you become part of His body. You become part of His bride. You become part of His family. You get to connect with no in a very real and deep way, other men and other women who are more than other men and other women, but are in fact your brothers and your sisters, that in Christ there are spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual sons and spiritual daughters. In Jesus, we are made one. In Jesus, we are made family. Do you see what this means for those of us who are married? Do you see what this means for those of us who are divorced? Do you see what this means for those of us who are single? One of the most beautiful women I know uh, is Alice Arnott. Uh, I took this photo of her while on a bus uh, in the Philippines uh, with a team from Compassion. And Alice has worked as my executive assistant for the past 10 
years. Uh, she also works part-time as a nurse, which comes in handy when you're dealing with someone as unhinged as me. Uh, but I, like, I am just her biggest fan because I'm just, um, thank God for the incredible ways that she pours herself out in devotion for the Lord. Uh, God has gifted her tremendously uh, and she uses those gifts. She fans those gifts into flame to, to serve the body of Christ in remarkable ways, high level leadership where she can organize peak level projects and coordinate us as a church. Like we would not be the church we are today without her humble, courageous, sacrificial leadership. And I also admire the way she pours herself out into other friends investing herself in, in meaningful relationships, thoughtfully, creatively, consistently. It's incredible. And, and perhaps even more than that for me personally, I, I love and, and admire the way that she has journeyed with our family, right? Whether that's coming to our household and looking after our four kids so that Ness and I can go out, whether that's playing Monopoly with our kids or, or, or taking them shopping, right? <laughs> Alice is, is not just a visitor to our home. She is to our kids adored. They view her as a big sister and indeed a mum. Here's some words that I asked, uh, I asked Alice to share some words about her experience. This is what she has to say, beautifully said. The experience of being a single woman in my 30s brings both griefs and gifts. I grieve the spouse I've prayed I may share my life with. And yet I rejoice in doing life with sisters and brothers who are committed to me and I to them. I grieve that I may not have children of my own, and yet I find a deep joy and purpose in loving the children of God, the children God has put in my life, as if they were my own. Where do I find my hope? Not in my identity as lover or mother or friend, but that I am a child of God, adopted into His family. He has surrounded me with family of my own, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children, his family. I am home. City on a hill. Isn't this what the kingdom of God is all about? Isn't this what Jesus laid down his life for? Isn't this who we now are, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and sons, and daughters in Christ. And isn't it also true that the more we lean in on each other, the more we pursue each other, the more we get to see and savor the beauty, the truth, the relevance of Christ. Jesus is good news, right? Whether you are married, single, divorced, the question we must all seek the question we must ask is, where can I find true love? Where will I know and experience true love? Not a fleeting experience, not a moment of pleasure, but a true, deep, abiding, secure, steadfast love. Where can I find a love like that, 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 that satisfies my heart, transforms my life and lifts me to something bigger than myself? Where will I know a love like that? Well, according to the Bible, the one and only answer to that question is God. Psalm 63, your steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven? But you, and besides you, 
I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, He's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. More, Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Do you hear the heart, the passion for God? They're not saying life is easy. They're not saying they don't experience struggles and frustrations. But what they are saying is that in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their striving, in the midst of their broken relationships, in the midst of their singleness, in the midst of their barrenness, in the midst of it all, God is their answer. God is their anchor. God is their hope, their joy, their love. And this is what makes the gospel good news because in Jesus we see and know God's love, not in part, but in full. A love that was desperate to pursue you. A love that came for you. A love that you were made to know. A love that you can enjoy right now and into all eternity. You know, Elizabeth Elliot, famous and and brilliant authors, you know, one of the jewels in in God's kingdom. her first husband, many of you will know, was Jim Elliott, a missionary who was killed on the mission field in Ecuador. She married her second husband nine years later, and yet he died just four years after the marriage. Elizabeth says this, Having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed a gift. Not one I would choose, not one many women would choose, But we do not choose our gifts, remember. We are given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. It is within the sphere of circumstances he chooses for us, single, married, widowed, that we receive him. It is there and nowhere else that he makes himself known to us. It is there we are allowed to serve him. Are you married? Are you divorced? Are you single? The divine giver wants above all else to give you himself. Don't don't waste your life pursuing this world. Don't waste your life pursuing an empty pleasure. This world is not enough. The pleasures of this world is not enough. You were made for God. You were made for Jesus. You were made to know and enjoy His love. And so let us now go to Him with open hands and an open heart to receive all that He wants to give. Father in heaven, we marvel at Your glory and we rejoice in Your grace. I thank You that right now, we, the body of Christ, as we connect together across Australia and indeed around the world, that we, that we are united in Jesus and that because of Jesus, we can now rest in your love. For those of us who do not yet know this love, not yet secure in this love, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would fill their home and their heart and that they would say yes to Jesus, that they'd welcome your love into their heart. 
And for those of us who know you, Lord, would you remind us afresh of your good news? Lord, may you be our first and highest love. May we cherish you this day and may we give you all the honor and glory that you deserve. And we pray this for our good. We pray this for the good of the church. And we pray this for your glory. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.